The reading is from Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, on page 979. The parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Thanks be to God. The second reading can be found in the same chapter, um, continuing from verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Would you have that passage open before you? And you'll know that uh, in our sermon series, this is the sermon card for those who are new to us, uh, we follow up a pattern, Lessons for Life from Jesus, and we're in the second one in our series. Uh, last week we looked at the sower, and this week we're looking at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and tares, as some of us would remember. So why does evil persist? Why doesn't God do something? Those are the sort of the questions that the parable of the wheat and tares or weeds is addressing. And it does so by taking an example from everyday life at the time Jesus was speaking. Jesus had announced the arrival of God's kingdom and many of the first listeners of the parable expected, as one commentator put it, a cataclysmic disruption and an immediate division between sons of light and sons of darkness. However, life went on much as before. And the consequence was that when this expectation was not fulfilled, there was a resulting sense of impatience that the parable addresses. For God's kingdom does bring division, and this division is certain. However, this is only fully apparent when God chooses to make it so at the final judgment. So in the meantime, 
God's kingdom is, in a sense, hidden and awaits that final supreme moment of disclosure when, as it were, the author comes onto the stage at the end of the play. The righteous sons and daughters of the kingdom will then be easily identifiable, even if they are not so now, as they will, verse 43, shine like the sun. So what does this parable tell us? Here's the first thing, I believe. The parable reveals the spiritual battle. The parable reveals the spiritual battle. We now have to do a certain amount of work to understand this parable, which would have had an immediate impact in an agricultural community. We are an urban community, and we don't understand what's going on. Tares were a weed called bearded darnel, lolium tamulentum. Just thought I'd pass that on to you. And in its early stages of growth, it was impossible to distinguish it from wheat. You needed to separate the seeds of the darnel because they are, in fact, slightly poisonous. But it was only when the crop was fully formed that you could tell which was which. And by then it was too late. For the roots of the darnel were intertwined with the wheat. And if you tried to pull it up, you'd pull up the wheat too. It's only at harvest that you could separate them. For while the seeds were similar in size and shape, the darnel was a very different slaty gray color. Now, you imagine, this involved a great deal of extra labor, time, and trouble. And indeed, one way of getting back at an enemy was deliberately to sow Darnell in their wheat crop. And in fact, it was a crime recognized and punished by Roman law. So this was a familiar hazard in farming. Now you see why I've had to go to some detail about this. I can see you glazing over. But you see, the parable identifies that there is a spiritual battle going on, that there is a hostile power who wants to destroy what God is doing in people's lives. And Jesus names him in verse 39. The enemy who sows them is the devil. Now, I don't know how you feel or you respond to Jesus' uncompromising identification of the devil. But he names him throughout his ministry. For example, when he meets outright hostility and opposition from the religious authorities, he describes the characteristics of the one who motivates their behavior. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and listen to this, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. Very interesting. The devil is a liar. He always has been. And, of course, Jesus met the devil in, so to speak, hand-to-hand combat when he was tempted in the wilderness, and we see his tactics. Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And so, of course, this is nothing less than a takeover bid by a usurper attempting to gain improper allegiance that rightfully belongs to God. And therefore the sons of evil are rebels against God's authority and rule. They deliberately seek to make people stumble and join them in their evil ways and lawlessness. 
The sons of the kingdom, by contrast, verse 43, are the righteous ones. Who, who are those who acknowledge God's lawful rule and authority? They have God as their father, and they are adopted into his family. You remember, they are sons, daughters, and heirs. Well, do we believe in evil today? I wrote this, of course, a few days ago. I think perhaps we are more sensitive to man's inhumanity to man when we see acts of real evil. Genocide, for example. The events in Africa. And then, of course, just more recently. How can that be in the 21st century? Haven't we become more modern? After all, we can send men to space. Why is this book still as relevant today as ever? Because man has not changed. The heart of man. And of course, Jesus named the author of that evil and he identified the reality of the spiritual battle. And that's... All the way through scripture, Paul the Apostle did so. He gave advice to the young leader, Timothy, fight the good fight. He didn't say, be nice to everybody. He said, there's a spiritual battle going on. Fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Interesting. Some have rejected these, and so, and I think this is such a powerful phrase, they have shipwrecked their faith. There clearly is a spiritual fight and the dangers are considerable. You can hit the rocks and sink. But the spiritual battle doesn't continue without end. And this is my second main point. The parable indicates the certainty of a final judgment and conclusion to this battle. This battle will end. There comes a moment when the wheat and weeds are separated by someone who knows which are which. And this happens, verse 40, at the end of the age. Yes, there is a period of secret growth of God's kingdom at the same time as the work of the evil one. But this will come to a final conclusion. And that moment is the climax of this parable and described in verses 40 to 43. There is an inescapable division of humanity into just two groups. Notice. Two groups. And the chief harvester, the owner of the kingdom, ensures accurate weeding, verse 41. He doesn't make mistakes. And the causes of evil and the things which make us to stumble are taken away. And of course, tragically, it is not things but often people who cause us to be tempted to go in the wrong direction, even if sometimes they fail to recognize that they're acting at the bidding of the evil one. And that explains Jesus' very strong reaction against Peter's protest. You remember Jesus was talking about the suffering that he was going to face, that he would be killed and raised to life. And of course, that just didn't fit with Peter's theology. How could that be? If you were God's Messiah, you surely would be saved from suffering and death. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
You see, the parable is saying that we are all going to be called to account by the one who has the authority and right to do so, God himself. And the consequences of his judgment may be tragic. The weeds, verse 42, are burnt in a furnace, probably not necessarily an image of hell from the New Testament, rather just a natural consequence. If you decide to go your way, you are distant from God, you will go in ways of evil. It's just a natural consequence. And Darnell was a useful fuel where wood was scarce. Nevertheless, there is destruction. And there's bitterness, there's regret, there's a weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 42. And the identification of the righteous becomes transparently clear for the whole world, verse 43. They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. There is no mistake as to who are sons of the kingdom or of the evil one. And this is a theme that echoes throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, Daniel 12, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The sons and daughters of the kingdom are no longer hidden as they were when they were growing together with the sons of the evil one. Now, I am very aware that all of this division, separation, and judgment are very countercultural themes. You may even be saying to yourself, goodness me, don't tell me the vicar believes this. I do, because it's here, because Jesus taught it. They are an undeniable part of Jesus' teaching, not just here, but throughout. And in the words of Michael Green, are we going to claim we know more about it than Jesus? We expect people to be accountable, don't we? We expect our judges to be accountable for their decisions. We expect our politicians to be accountable. Our doctors, our teachers, they're all accountable. But somehow we avoid the inevitable conclusion that we too are accountable for our lives to God. I don't know how we do that. And the fact that scripture is difficult or challenging is no reason to dismiss it. Jim Graham, a Baptist pastor, in a sermon about the church, said this. I find it very striking. Here it is. Never lower the revelation of scripture to the level of your experience. Never lower the revelation of scripture to the level of your experience. But we're living in a world which does just that. If we can't believe it, we don't think it's right, then we dismiss it. So we get our pair of scissors and we say, oh, I don't like this parable. So thirdly, this is my main point, what are the implications of this parable for us? I want to briefly mention three that I think that are there. Here's the first one. Don't get impatient. Evil won't win. It's not like an England football match and you think, oh, we're going to lose again. It's not like that. We're on the winning side. We know the result. I hardly dare say it's like an England international against Australia, but it is. It's that sort of thing, reality. It is for God in his time finally to deal with evil, and he does. He will. He's promised it. His promises are certain. 
We can rest assured about that. Of course, it is not easy to be patient. And it's an age-old dilemma that the writer of Psalm 73 faced. If you just turn in your Bible to 586 at the front, if you want to, Psalm 73 is a very powerful psalm because it addresses the same question. Why do the wicked get away with it? Verse 3, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. They scoff and speak with malice. They have been in the Bahamas. They look well. They are so fit and healthy. Rather like our previous curate. He oozes health. And note that arrogant rebellion against God, verse 11. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Wow. And the answer to the question is, of course, yes. God does know what evil they are doing. Nothing escapes his attention. But it is tough, as evil people seem to be getting away with it. Nothing seems to be happening. And the psalmist admits it, verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost slipped I had nearly lost my foothold. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. But together with patience, there needs to be a new perspective if the psalmist is to make sensitive of it all. And this he gains, verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. What was it? Verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And so, in short, the psalmist recognized the fact and reality of the judgment of God. You see, the Bible holds together. You know, it's not the horrid God of the Old Testament who does judgment. The New Testament speaks of it because it's a reality. Here's my second point about what it means to us. We must leave the judging to God. He will always get it right. We don't. We may think someone is living a Darnell-like life when, in fact, if we knew everything, we'd see that, in fact, they were wheat. And God's character is benevolent towards humanity. He doesn't want anyone to perish, says Peter. And his character remains the same throughout Scripture. So he revealed himself to Moses, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And the subtle nature of God's character is repeated in Psalm 86, verse 15, Psalm 145, verse 8. And of course, living in New Testament times, we know the climax of his love, which is revealed in the New Testament with the sending of Jesus. Paul simply writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
You see, love will involve judging, won't it? If you love someone, you will not say, there, there, it's all right. I've noticed there's a a thing uh, with my grandchildren. You've taken a wrong decision. You've made a wrong choice. Well, that's okay, but sometimes you've got to say, that's wrong. Because you love them. God loves us. And so we must not usurp God's place by leaving leaving the judging of others to him. And someone may even at their last moment of life turn to God. We don't know. We can't possibly tell. Uh, In the Screwtape letters written by C.S. Lewis, you remember imaginary letters between a correspondence between a senior devil and a junior devil. Screwtape, the senior devil. Wormwood, the junior devil. And the junior devil is tasked to look after a human being to get his soul for the devil. At the last moment, his human recognizes and acknowledges God in the last moments of his life. And Screwtape is furious. You have let a soul slip through your fingers. And he said, Wormwood, you are in trouble. But I think it's so encouraging, isn't it? We don't know whether someone is Darnell or Wheat, because we don't have all the knowledge that God does. And here's my final point. We need to recognize that there is a spiritual battle today. It's a reality today. Jesus takes us by this parable into the heavenly cabinet war room for a privileged view so we understand the reality of the battle being waged. And this should put us on our guard, make us ready, alert, and unsurprised as we see this battle, this spiritual battle, raging around us. Now, when the the, the parable was first told, it was clear that it was not about the church. We're explicitly told that the field, verse 38, is the world where good and evil coexist. Nevertheless, the principle surely holds good today as we consider the church part of that world, the principle of good and evil coexisting even in the church. The Apostle Paul, in his moving farewell address to the Ephesian elders, described that reality. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Attacks on the church come not only from outside, but also from within. And their method of attack is to distort the truth, because, of course, Satan is a liar. And their purpose is to draw away disciples after them rather than Jesus. And that remains the case throughout church history up to and including the present day which is why we need to understand what the truth is. The truth is revealed in Scripture, the truth revealed by Jesus, the truth of this parable, whether we find it hard or not. And, of course, their aim is to draw people away from the living God. 
And just in case we think, oh, well, this is all a bit too much, Jesus' last words echo the words of the parable of the sower. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He is saying, wake up. Wake up. Wake up, St. Michael's. We're going to face, we are facing attacks from outside, we know that. Are you alert to the attacks from within inside? Are you sure we've got a grasp of the truth? Because people will come and say, are you sure? Do you remember uh, in the Garden of Eden? Is that really what God said? I, I, I don't think he did, you know. So in conclusion, in the face of the persistence of evil, the parable tells us that there is a spiritual battle. It declares the certainty of God's judgment. What is our response? Be patient, get God's perspective. Let God be the judge and be on guard for Satan's attacks. And finally, consider your own walk with God. Where are you with God? As reading Psalm 15, it's a wonderful psalm. Perhaps you could read it even today, because I think it helps us reflect on our current relationship with him in these days of opportunity. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary, who may live on your holy hill, he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? So let's start here. Let's pray. We're in the presence of the living God, and he speaks to us, perhaps drawing something to our attention, something for us to do as a result of his word today. Grasp it. Remember it. Do it. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that your attitude to us is of love. Paul's letter to remind us to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? And as we take the bread and the wine in this communion service, we're reminded of that so powerfully. And yet we also know we live in a world where acts and deeds have consequences. And so we pray that we may be watchful, prayerful, alert. That we may be grasped by the truth and understand when the truth is being distorted. That we may walk humbly with you in these days, for we pray it that Jesus may be honoured. Amen.